This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Reality Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Uh, flick us a text, 2057, or an email inbox at realitycheck.radio. Well, you're going to love our next guest. It's the Honourable Morris Williamson. I don't know about the Honourable, but the Queen said he could have it, so he's got it. Now, Morris Williamson is famous for actually saying what he thinks. It's probably not the best strategy if you're going to be a politician or a cabinet minister or indeed an Auckland councillor. But Morris Williamson is very famous for being a very talented communica- communicator. Uh, he led New Zealand, particularly into the information age with computers and the internet, uh, and he could explain it, not just so that the public could understand it, but so that MPs could understand it. And New Zealand uh, did so much better at all of computing and internet, and no small part to Morris Williamson. He's had a very, very interesting life. He now sits as a councilman. I'm going to say that word, uh, on Auckland Council. And so we're going to hear about that, and we're going to hear about Morris. Good morning, Morris. Good morning. Now, most important thing first, when I text you about this interview, you said you were with your mother on Mother's Day. Yes. And you said she was 100. She's over 100. She still lives in our family home in Matamata. She still goes out with a Zimmer frame and prunes her roses. She's got a lovely big photo of King Charles and Queen Camilla, who sent her a birthday message. But what I found hilarious was a year ago when I was saying to her, look, if we can get you through to later this year, mum, you'll get a letter from the Queen. She turned to me and she said, I don't think so. I said, oh, no, it's it's automatic. We, we've notified uh, the powers that be and it'll come automatically. And she said, I just don't think it'll be from the Queen. I think it'll be from King Charles. And I said, that's a dreadful thing to say. And it turned <laughs> out she was right. She's 100. What a yep. great age. And got her marbles. Oh, shockingly so. Uh, she'll she'll call me up from time to time and say, why the hell did Christopher Luxon have to say that last night on the news? And I said, I don't even know what he said. She said, well, it was stupid. He shouldn't be saying those things. And I said, well, mum, maybe there was a good reason for it. and Maybe there was some validity to it. Well, it's just silly. And she said, it won't get voters on side. And I think, boy, I wish I was like that when I'm 100. Yeah, so I she lives on her own. She lives on her own. She lives on her own in a family home, and I'm the only child, so I've got to spend a lot of time down there with her. But uh, I did have a sister years ago, but she died from a brain tumour, which is something I'm never going to die from, they tell me, because you have to have a brain. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I'm lacking that, so it's fine. But, uh, you know, she lives in her own home, and uh, she gets her little meals and sticks them in the microwave, and I've tried to get her into a retirement village or something. And she just yells at me, I can't believe my only son would want to put me into a prison. So she she's very happy and she loves her life and um, the brain is still active. Rodney, I, I went to many retirement villages when I was an associate health minister back in the 90s and I saw people in their 80s sitting in a lazy boy chair looking out the window and oblivious to who they were, why they were there, what was happening around them. And I thought I'd rather not be, I'd rather be able to, exit stage left than that mm. but she's still i mean she's diminishing in stature and she body is frail and the zimmer frame needed to get around but smart you know just what you know i get i get 
towed up every time I talked to her for having not done something or not said something. Well, she was 40 when President Kennedy was shot. <laughs> um, oh, my goodness. How wonderful is that? And she can ring you? Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'm in her speed dial. And it comes up on my screen. And even if I'm at a council meeting, if I see her calling, I will go outside and take it because if I don't take the call, it'll be a lot of grief later in the day for why didn't you answer when I called you? My mother died last year at 94. Oh, wow. And and one of the things that I noticed, and she had all her faculties right up to the last minute, one of the things that I noticed that was quite strange is that Everyone you know is dead, if you know what I mean. No, look, I tell you, that's one of the things that we've laughed together. (laughs) One of our best laughs is my best advice to her recently was don't buy green bananas. (laughs) (laughs) Because? (laughs) Well, because... You may not be around by the time they oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> by the time they ripen. Yeah, by the well, time they ripen. <laughs> but the other thing was we'd planned, you know, who would be because we held a huge birthday party for her on her 80th birthday in Matamata at a big function center. And she didn't know about it. And people came from overseas and from everywhere for it. And it was a phenomenal thing. And I've now gone back through the videos and the pictures of those. And nobody, nobody, including my dad nobody who was at that party is still alive. And so we're going to have to sort of go out to John Minto and rent a crowd or something yes. to get them along to be to make a numbers at a funeral because she all of her friends from the bowling club are all dead. All of her brothers and sisters, they were all Catholic. And so she's one of 12, I think, and dad was one of 13. All gone, all, all, and long gone. Some of them long, long, long ago gone. And so I keep saying to her, Mum, I don't know what we will do for a funeral. I don't know who we would have there. It's strange, isn't it? My my mother seemed to prepare herself for death when she had a very dear friend pass away. Mm. And it was like that was it, you know. She loved her so much and they had such a good time together. And when then she died, it was sort of like it, my, it, it really affected my mum, her friend dying. Yeah, and um, because you know all her, all her, all her siblings were long gone, and um, to be a hundred, uh, and to look around, it's quite funny though because, you know, you think of the kid that bullied bullied you at school, he's gone. Um, you might have had a few uh, caucus colleagues. Um, that annoyed you in your life, and you think they're gone, and <laughs> you sort of win because you're still standing, right? You're still, I'm still. There's a good song. <laughs> I'm still standing. But yeah, now, what, what's what's also incredible is because we are not believers of any sort. I'm a I'm an arch atheist and don't believe in any afterlife. And my mum has come to that belief as well now, even though she was a very staunch Catholic as a child. She's happy to go now. She says, you know, my time's here. I really have done everything I need to. I don't really want to hang around anymore. Mm. I've had a great life, and uh, I'm happy to go. And she accepts. She accepts that from the day she dies, her life will be exactly like the trillions of years were before she was born. Yeah, exactly the same as those years. Yeah, I can accept that, Mm. and I can accept that for my mum and myself and my dad. Mm. Mm. I tell you what, I struggle with on the atheism thing, Morris. Yep. And. You and I grew up in a Christian world. Yes. And there was a wonderful ethic 
There was a yes. wonderful set of values. There was a shared set of values. Even as an atheist, you could move around that world and yes. you had those values. There was someone looking over your shoulder. There was a higher authority to government. And I look at where we are today, a non-Christian, non-believing country, and it's all me, 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 lying, dishonesty, no standards. Oh, no, I was a boy, but now I've decided to be a girl. All this sort of nonsense. And I don't feel as though we have a grounded belief. And I know you and I love reason. We love argument. We love trying to get to the truth. But I wonder now whether it's enough. Well, look, I accept that there may have been some moral standards. The fear of uh, being burnt in hell had a lot of people scared to make them behave. Uh, I, I still just don't. I don't get it. Mm. Uh, I'm just going to give you one statistic now because this I did a degree in physics, and when I was doing physics, I just literally lost all belief. And I'll give you one statistic. I want you to remember this. If you take every grain of sand on the earth, that is, you went out with big buckets and you got every, one, every grain of sand from the Sahara, the Gobi Desert, you took every from the beaches of Hawaii and 90-mile beach, every grain of sand on the earth, you work it out. If you multiply it by a cubic meter and how many is in a cubic meter, it's estimated there is 10 to the power of 18. So that's a one with 18 zeros after it. Huge number. It's a trillions of a trillion of a trillion grains of sand on the earth. And since Hubble was released, not James Webb, because that's only just gone up and we'll be able to see a lot better and a lot more. But since Hubble was released, we've been able to identify 10 to the 21 stars. Isn't that that means for every grain of sand on the earth, stand on the beach and pick up one grain of sand. For every grain of sand on the earth, there is a thousand stars in the universe that we know of. Mm. And that makes you realize just how small we are. Mm. We are just so trivial. We are so inconsequential. Or how wonderful God is. Sorry? Or how wonderful God is. Well, he was very busy to make that many, and, and he did it in six days. And then, had and a, it's a funny, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Because when I was a hardcore atheist, and now I'm sort of wavering. <laughs> there was a Muslim physicist whose name escapes me who got the Nobel Prize in researching black holes and what okay. have you. And I mean, that's one of the features too, isn't it? Because People who are religious come from all walks of life. It's not like you're a clever scientist and you necessarily drop your belief. No, uh, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. And, I can tell I, you that in the United States, they publish some figures that yes. all of the senior scientific community across the board, around about 87% of them are not believers. Oh, poor thing. It's huge. It's huge mm. percentage. There are still some people uh, there's a guy who did a whole lot of work in um, in in the whole evolution space, but still believes God started it. He's one of the senior people equivalent. Yeah. But they're, they're a handful relative to the vast bulk who no longer believe. So, yeah, it's going. It's a it's a very interesting thing, and I mean, um, 
it's it's a lovely discussion to have and to have it in a way that doesn't get people flustered and upset. Mm. But I just, uh, I'm very troubled um, by the lack of values and principles. Oh, so am I. And, and you can't now interact with someone with a sense of a shared experience or shared understanding of what the right thing and wrong thing to do is. Well, because you get you get cancelled the moment you say anything that a small group don't want you to be able to say. Yeah, I, I saw a brilliant clip the other day from Bill Maher, the British, the American comedian, and he was talking about this idea of transiting from one gender to another, and he says you cannot go to a liberal party in LA now. You just cannot go to a liberal party, you know, drinks and hors d'oeuvres with friends, where there won't be several parents comparing the experience their child is having and transiting from one gender to another. And they'll be chatting about it. And, you know, my Susie's heading towards being a Jimmy and so on. But he said, in Youngstown, Ohio, they don't even know what you're talking about. So he said, are we... Are we just experiencing a whole lot of it geographically wise in LA and it doesn't happen <laughs> elsewhere? Or are we creating this by being the sort of the woke we're trying to? And I think, you know, there's a lot of merit to that because I, I grew up in Matamata and went to Matamata College. I didn't know this sort of thing even existed. No, I didn't know. I didn't, know I didn't believe there was such a thing as homosexuality until I was 19. Yeah, not yeah. I probably don't know what time I thought that, but but that's a different thing. That is to do with how people were born. Of course, and that makes me laugh as well. During the sort of the gay rights debate, people have said we've got a right to be treated like how we were born. That's what we are. And I keep thinking, yeah, okay, I'm fine with that. But now you've got people are saying, no, we don't want to be treated the way we were born. Mm. We want to be something different to that. And I think, oh, gee. It's a whole different category. You're quite right because you can be a boy or a girl and you're attracted to your same sex, but you're still a boy or still a girl. And even with transgenderism, when you and I knew transgenderism, the transgender ladies typically who were men understood that they were men who preferred to be women. And they weren't inserting themselves into women's spaces or into women's sports. Right. Now we've got this activist madness where guys with beards and all the paraphernalia that comes with being a man yeah. decide that they can walk into the changing rooms of your daughter. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. I, I'm old-fashioned, but I believe there are anatomical differences yeah. and muscular and skeletal shape changes that men have compared to women. And I know that when you put the women's all black rugby team up against the men's, they would just get crushed in the first mm. scrum that occurred. They're just different. And then yeah. to say, to then to say, oh, one of those blokes can go over and play with you and be in your team and say, cause he identifies as a woman. Uh, look, I, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm pretty much pleased that I'm heading towards the end of my life on the planet. Cause it just, it's 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 crazy in my view. If you do want to do those things, I'm a big libertarian and I'm a, I'm a fan that Me you can live the life you want. But please don't then insist that I'm going to go in and compete in a women's swimming race where I can be half a length down the pool before they've even got started because I'm so big and strong. But I'm actually a man. Mm. But how weird is it, Morris, that even women or you and I standing up for our wives and daughters and sisters and yep. mums uh, and saying, look, 
we don't mind what you do, but you're not allowed, men are not allowed, they can't put on a frock and walk into the right. women's toilets or changing rooms right. or stay in their hospital wards or prisons and you can't play in their sports, right? You can put a frock on and pretend you're a woman. That's fine. Go to it, yeah. But we're not even allowed to publicly say that without being physically attacked. But that's the whole cancel culture thing, you see. what we If you're a very small group of people and you want to make sure that your views make the headlines all the time, the moment anyone steps slightly into the space that you're protecting, create this huge kerfuffle. I, I, I know someone quite well in the media who was talking to editors at the Herald the other day saying, why do you give this... I think it's Lal, Shanine Lal. Why, oh, do you, God, why yes. do you give him so much coverage when he's a 0.1 of 1% of the public? And the answer was because it gets eyeballs on screens and it gets readers. And uh, the more we do of that, the more our readership flourishes and grows and the more people read it. And so if they were to go along and say, well, not, we're not going to cover that person anymore, that would be detrimental to their commercial interests. So... Now, somebody who represents a very small percentage of the public, incredibly small percentage, gets way, way more coverage than anything that's just... And whom incites violence? Well, that's the problem, although I understand it's only us cis white men that cause all the no, violence. No, that's right. We're under mentally... Cause... But here, I don't buy that for a minute, Morris. What, that it's all us white blokes? No, I buy that. <laughs> um, I've always blamed you. Um <laughs> No, what I don't get is that it's eyeballs. Because imagine this. If it was about eyeballs, they would have a column each week for Morris Williamson explaining why this is nonsense. Now, that would get read too. And you'd create it, create this debate. The debate, yeah. But they won't. No. So I... Like, I never click on the Herald now or stuff because it doesn't speak to me. No, uh, there's no, nothing there of interest. No. So there's something deeper which I don't understand because you're but, right. It's but, such a small but dig thing. into this world a bit more, Rodney. Just dig yeah. into this. You have a minister in the current government go on television and says it's white cis men yes. that cause all the violence in the world. Those yes. were her words. I've checked yes. them and gone through them. Now, I would have thought within seconds the race relations conciliator would have come out and said, that is outrageous, mm -hmm. that is a racist statement beyond belief, and mm -hmm. Marima Davidson should withdraw it or we'll issue some form of a public censure saying it's disgraceful. Ming Foon never said a word. He agrees with that. But if I had said... It's all brown women that cause all the what, whatever in the world. You would have been labelled a racist, and quite rightly so, and you cannot group every person and every category together. But what I want to know is why is there one rule for one direction, but the moment it's the other, oh, you can't say that, you mustn't do that, that's not right. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful the pendulum will swing back. 
I think the pendulum has gone so far. I mean, there were there were years when people had no rights to say what they wanted or who they were, and I think that was wrong. And being a strong libertarian, I encourage them to have their rights, to have their views and their say. But it's now got to a point where you're scared to say anything to the contrary or debate it or say, well, I think Marama Davidson was wrong because I do. I don't think it's all white cis men. And if she was right, then it means in countries in Africa where there are no white cis men, are you telling me there's no violence in those countries? Really? No, we, no, we caused that too. We caused it from just afar. Yeah, because of colonialism. <laughs> so, Prince, I mean, in the end, we, Prince in Harry the end, I'm, and com- I'm confident the pendulum will swing back. I really am. Well, you, I'm so pleased to hear that because you are an optimist. Uh, unfortunately, since uh, spending a lot of time with you in Parliament, uh, I have had the wonderful experience of having three more wonderful children who are at primary oh, wow. school. Wow. And I've got to tell you, if you've got kids at primary school or grandkids at primary school, you're not so optimistic. No. Because the – and I go on a lot about this on the show, and I think people think – that I've become obsessed and fixated on it. And I guess I have because people don't realize how pervasive transgenderism is in the curriculum across all studies and being constantly discussed. And my kids at primary school, they have 10, 15% in year eight, are non-binary. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I know. I, I got a because I you say to night. kids, you say to kids, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, and it's the cool thing to be oh, gay, yeah, yeah. to be trans. But the thing that amazes me, it's like that thing on um, in California. The parents love it. Mm particularly the um, mums. Oh, little Johnny, you know, and... Um, he's going through stages. Yeah, and oftentimes, this is what they discovered in the UK, it was boys that were gay were being quickly identified as trans. And yeah. um, if you're in the UK, they'd have you, they'd castrate you before you knew where you were. Um, and in the United States now, 25% of high school kids are non-binary. You see, I, in I California. Mean, I, I just don't believe that. I mean, I just... No, of course they're not. Of course no, they're not. No. But it's like being a goth, right? When you yeah. were growing up, you were yeah. like, what were yeah. you? Teddy boy, or you played in a rock band, or... Yeah, I, I, uh, was, Beatles, I was Beatles era, and my dad banned Beetle Boots. Yeah. So I used to keep them in a friend's car. We'd go out for the night playing in the band. When we'd finish, we'd meet back at his car. I'd take them off and put on ordinary shoes because if I ever came into my house in the farm in Matamata wearing beetle boots, these winkle pickers, <laughs> big sharp, I'd get a smack round the ears for it. Mm. But everybody wanted long hair because the Beatles had it and everyone had wanted beetle boots. So there is always trends and fashions. That's and right. It's cool. But you, what worries me about this is some of these changes are a bit like tattoos. They're not reversible. No. And then the other thing is I notice, and this is uh, mental, they call it now mental health issues, is the kids are confused. Yes. And they don't have, and again, they don't have a rock-solid 
standard, even one and one doesn't necessarily equal two, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. And so they're in this world that's adrift and um, they aren't being taught, they're being facilitated and everything's airy-fairy and if you're white, you caused all these problems and you're responsible. If you're a boy, you're a bit toxic. It's, it's this undercurrent um that's there which i think is very destructive of the values that you and i hold dear the values of western civilization which isn't a racist thing it's a it's a cultural thing which many races subscribe to mm. and appreciate that is but, being systematically undermined. But I, I can live with someone uh, in years gone by wanting to be a goth and painting their face white and their hair jet black because 10 years later they could be running a big company and being incredibly mm. successful. What I worry about is the genital mutilation that goes on, the, mm. the, the steroid changing, the beta blockers that are, that, that, that are changing the entire chemistry of someone's body irre irreparably. And I think, well, you know, we've got to be very careful about that. And you, even you, if you don't go in for the um, physiological castration or chemical castration or the physical castration or whatever, even the mental effect of believing of course. that a boy can be a girl is pretty weird. Anyway, Morris. All right. That's great. How long were you an MP? 30 years, and you get less for murder. <laughs> you loved it. Uh, I did for a, for a quite a long time. I didn't towards the end. I got really bored with it. I should have left earlier than I did. If I have any regrets, I said it in my valedictory. My time was up at least a couple of terms earlier than that, and I should have just gone. I just always had a great hope of new things. I One of my great prides as I fought a fight with uh, the whole National Party caucus for some years about fibre optic. And John Key said, look, Treasury, we, this is before we went into government in 2008. John Key says, look, we've been advised it's not economic, uh, it's too costly, uh, fibre in the backbone, yes, but not to the not to the residents. So you'll have cabinets in a suburb and then it'll be copper. And I kept arguing, I've been overseas, I've met with the sort of the gurus of where this is going, Fibre optic will be the new electricity or the new roading network of the future. And with it, we can participate on the world stage as, uh, along with anyone else. And uh, I remember, and I said this in my valedictory, if you're ever masochistic enough to watch it on YouTube, and John Key was sitting there, I said one night at a, at a meeting of the sort of kitchen uh, shadow cabinet, I put my paper up for the fourth time and was pleading with them to give it some consideration for our policy. And he stood up and he threw the paper across the buddy desk and he said, you can have your effing uh, bloody fibre and walked out. And I stood there with a, sat there with a big smile on my face, looked around and said, do I take that as a yes? <laughs> and of course, we did go to the election in 2008 fibre. And I can tell you now that when COVID hit, if we didn't have that fibre optic backbone, this country would have been stuffed. Yeah. No, good on you. Mm. And um, 30 years in MP, you are a cabinet minister and with Jim Bolger? Yeah, with Bolger and then with Shipley and a minister under Key. Mm. And you enjoyed being a minister? Uh, yes, but 
was always hard to get things that I wanted done because you've got to get everybody else to agree. And again, in my valedictory, I said, you know, like Frank Sinatra, regrets, I've had a few, but, well, not too few to mention, actually. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I pleaded with that cabinet in the 90s on about three occasions to sell TVNZ. I imagine it. They would, have got, a, no they would have got a billion for it back then. Oh, yeah, that's right. There was simply no reason for us to own a commercial television channel. Uh, and the argument I got back, and Jim Bolger was one of the leading advocates of this, is it's our way of promoting New Zealand culture to the people, uh, and that's why the government must keep owning this, because uh, commercial stations won't be interested in New Zealand's culture and identity. And so in my valedictory speech when I was leaving, I pulled up the, the schedule of the programmes on TV1 that night, not TV2, which is clearly nothing but commercial nonsense, but TV1, supposed to be the purveyor of our culture and the essence of what we are as a people. And the programs went something like this, uh, My Kitchen Rules Australia, mm. followed by Voted Off the Island Samoa, followed by uh, Grand Designs UK, a program about um, buildings, followed by Coronation Street, and finally after that a program, a British program called Four in a Bed. And I turned in the house and said, Murray McCulley will have to explain that to me. <laughs> that is, if it's Murray McCulley, it is Kiwi culture. Because I didn't know. But they were nothing to do with promoting New Zealand no. culture and ID. And it never was going to be because it's it's a, neither fish nor fowl. It's trying to make its own way by selling advertising and so on, but it's not able to do that making product if it's going to be just culture and identity. You would have and got a phenomenal price for it back then. I was prepared. I, I didn't want this and I would have fought it, but I was prepared if that had been put into a fund and the the income off that fund was used to promote New Zealand culture and identity programs. Mm. I, I didn't export it. But why we had to keep owning it, and I went over and I, and I never got never got it, and we still own TVNZ today, and every day that passes it's withering and dying on the vine uh, because no one in my household, no one here, watches free-to-air television. No, no. No. So you went overseas for four years to the States, but I yeah. want to pick up, uh, you've successfully been elected to the Auckland Council. Yes. And I want you to tell us about that experience. What was it like turning up to council? Well, it's an enormous cultural change because – I'd always been used to a political world where when you made an announcement, if the Minister of Finance like will do what the budget and announces things, that's it because you know that it will come to a vote in the House and you've got the votes because you use the whip and the numbers are there. And I also know that the Minister of Finance will not consult with even his own backbench until Thursday uh, the one hour before we used to always go into the caucus room and we'd get locked in there and the Minister of Finance would, or uh, or probably a proxy because they'd normally be doing the lock-up with all the journalists. But someone, the, dep the Associate Minister of Finance, would come and brief us and say, well, what in the budget, one hour when we go into the House, we're doing this with health, this is how much is extra for this, and there'd be rounds of applause and so on. Well, in council, the world is so different, it's not funny. First of all, Anything you want to do, you have to consult. You have to consult exceedingly widely. And, of course, the problem with that is the vast bulk of the New Zealand public have a view that, you know, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. 
And so when you talk about cutting expenditure, you'll have people say, oh, I agree, you've got to cut it. But you mustn't cut the bit I'm involved in, the arts, or you mustn't cut forest and bird, or you mustn't cut the healthy eating program that our council runs. This, this consultation, do. Morris, it's not just with the councillors, it's with the community. Oh, and, and it's a very formal process. You can't so just it's in legislation. Oh, we went and chatted to three people and they are okay with us selling the airport shares, so we're done. You've got to go and do an absolute formal consultation round. You've got to publish proper documents. You've got to let every organisation that wishes to make its submissions and you have to collate them. All the local boards have to have meetings where people come to their, have their say and all of that gets collated and comes back. Now, I've got a real concern about that for one reason. If you, the, 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 I've always had a view that the thing that will make you more unpopular in politics than anything is to fail to, is unfulfilled expectations. If you promise you're going to do something and then you don't. I know that in 1990, we promised we were going to get rid of the surtax. And when we got elected, not only did we not get rid of it, we actually increased it. And it, re it created huge anger from the public who had believed when they were voting national, we were going to do something. So when we've said, when I said during my campaign, I was going to get in there and rein in the spending monster and stop all of the growth and expenditure because it's been blowing through the roof and we've run up 11.7 billion of debt and so on, you think, wow, that's a great line. I'll vote for him. But I'm chairman of the expenditure control committee at that place and I have no more say than the other 19 councillors or the mayor. We are one vote. And every time we'll take a vote, it will matter whether you can get 11 across the line for anything. And then you get, you get the argument back as, well, we haven't consulted on that, so you can't even do it. And that consultation requirement is set in legislation. Yes, it's in the Local Government Act. And my view is that if the government truly believes that that's a good thing that you have to go out and consult, if they truly believe that, then why don't they adopt it for central government budgets? Mm. Because it's the total opposite of leadership. Yes. Yes, it is. I mean, you're, you're being run by the mob, and as you say, as, as the mob, yeah, 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 I want my rates to come down. Yeah, 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 I want the debt to be managed. Yeah, 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 but, oh, don't cut my funding. Mm. And you multiply that. And, of course, the ones that want to be consulted with it are the ones that are actually receiving the funding, not the ratepayers. In general, the vast bulk of people making submissions were the ones that were participating in in the council payments or, or council support or council buildings made available. Your ordinary Johnny ratepayer out there just gets his rates bill and goes, bloody hell, it's gone up again. And um, I can't see why. And so I've done some real heavy analysis on the spending in there. And there are particular divisions within the council where their spending over the last four years has increased. In fact, just so I don't get it wrong, I decided to put it up here on my screen for you. Let me give you some of these numbers. Um, certain divisions have had over the last four years, and this is while inflation was running at 13%. The increases for customer and community services, uh, which is a budget of 200 and, or 306 million, is up 56% over that same time frame that inflation ran at 13. The infrastructure and environmental services at 288 million is up 49%. The group services, 
194 million over that time, 30%. Uh, planning division from 43 million to 66, up 53.9. All those increases, which are huge, occurred while total inflation was 13%. That's over and like so, two or three years, is it? Uh, four years. It's over four a four-year period. It's disgusting. And it's on a railway track, right? The train's but, just hurtling down the tracks. The tracks are sort of the legislative planning process for the budget. And a Minister of Finance, as you say, can't sit there and yeah. do a budget, tell Treasury what's what, tell yeah. them what, 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 what they need, have the party support and do it. Because in a council, you've got this legislative requirement to consult. You can't rely on the other councillors to back you. Correct. And more particularly, even if they said they will back you, you can't rely on them to stay backing you. Correct. That's, I think, the difference. Central government, you both have the whip in terms of knowing you've got the votes to do what you've decided. Mm. But more importantly, the Public Finance Act, you know, and the Fiscal Responsibility Act and a number of others, they they absolutely hamstring departments yes. from going on a knees-up Mother Brown while spending chase because they've got to apply every year for budget increases and explain what they are and quality should get through the door. I don't think it always happens, but it should. And the, and the Minister of Finance and Treasury can be saying, we don't believe that a big number of the line items you're spending have got quality spending. There's a lot of wastage in there. There's fat in there that you can cut and so on. Uh, but we don't have that control over even the various divisions within the council. And so without that Public Finance Act control, without a finance minister who says, I'm putting my foot down and the new spending for the coming year will only be X, and everybody's budget has to fit within that magnificent total of X, that doesn't exist. And so I, I really feel for Mayor Wayne Brown because his instincts are great and he wants to do things. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, I hope Brown will do the following, but they've got to understand he gets one vote at yeah. that table. It's not like the prime minister who can decide, you know, this is what we're doing and you get announcements and it was announced this morning, Prime Minister, John Key said that we will be doing this and you sit there and you go, oh, well, okay, well, I guess that's right because he's got the numbers and when we go to the House, Mayor Brown sits there sometimes with his head in his hand saying, you know, how do we get to a place where well, all these circles intersect? A mayor, a mayor is in the worst of all circumstances, yes. right? Yes. Because um, people say they want MPs to be more independent. No, 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 no. They do not want their MPs more independent because no. then you'll have the council situation and you'll have no leadership. You'll have no accountability because um, accountability just becomes this amorphous thing. Mm -hmm. And I, as I travelled around councils uh, as Minister of Local Government, what you'd find is there'd be councillors sitting there for 25 years on the council and a mayor would come along and the mayor couldn't do a thing, but everyone Correct. would vote for the mayor because of their vision, but they're totally ha hamstrung Correct. Uh, by the, the councillors. Oh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. And then the other thing I noticed, uh, Morris, is the chief executive has enormous power yes. in local council compared yes. to central government. 
That, that's true. And what makes me laugh is, I mean, I'm an elected ward councillor for the Howick Ward. Howick Ward is bigger than any other city in New Zealand other than Wellington and Christchurch. Oh, really? It's My ward is bigger than Hamilton. My ward is bigger than Dunedin in terms of population. Yeah. And, you know, of course, so it's yeah. a, and there's only two councillors for a ward bigger than those cities. And if you take Gore, where the big war's going on at present, you could fit Gore into one little corner of the Howard yeah. Ward. It's so, but the problem is that that the mayor gets elected and everyone says, I like what he's saying about this and I like what he's going to do about that. And he gets there and he goes, well, uh, I'm going to try. And to be fair, Brown is trying his best to get there. Let, let me give you one little example. And I think this will bring hundreds into perspective, but this is just one. The council owns about 18.1% of Auckland airport shares. So we don't get a director on the board because you've got to be at 21% to qualify for a director. So we don't get any say in the direction of that company if it decides to build new runways or a flash big international or domestic terminal. That is the directors of that company that decide and the council owning 18.1 has no say. The first thing that I think is quite frightening is there are some councillors saying, well, we should buy more of that company so we get to the 21 and we can have a director on it. Now, the first thing they don't understand is that under the Companies Act, if we had a director that we appointed to the port, to the Auckland Airport, they have to, they have to act in the best interest of, of the company, not the shareholder. Yes. And so if the airport wants to build a new terminal for $3.9 billion, they have to be voting according to what's best for the company. Or they can be charged. Or they can be charged. So that's the first point. The second point is uh, the dividend we've got back from Auckland Airport over the last three years, and I'm really good at numbers because I can remember these off by heart. The dividend for the last three years has been zero, zero, and zero. So we've had no dividend back from those shares, which are worth around $2.3 billion. But we've got 11.7 billion of debt and paying, fortunately, some of it's, or quite a lot of it's been hedged and we've been paying still modest interest rates. But as those hedge lines come off over the next few years, we've got to go to the market and you may or may not have spotted, but interest rates have been just creeping up slightly. And so you've got way more cost for the interest foregone than you have what you'd get back, even of the best of times, what the dividend would be. So my view is it's a lay down Mazir. Why would you hold on to shares in a company you have no say in, for which what you're getting back by way of dividend, even the best of times, is absolutely dwarfed by how much your interest costs are on that same level of debt you could reduce? But I'm telling you right now, I don't think there are 11 councillors prepared to vote for the sale of the Auckland Airport shares. I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But on best count, I can come to about seven or eight or maybe nine. It's extraordinarily uh, depressing. And the other thing I suspect you're finding, and this was my disappointment about Auckland Council, I expected with one council, the New Zealand Herald in particular, to do a much better analysis because there's just one council, right? Yes. Of the fiscal 
future of the council, uh, the policy direction of the council, particularly as it affects housing costs and land costs. And there is zero analysis. If you ask the punter in the street about the fiscal makeup of Auckland Council or how its policies were driving up prices, they wouldn't have the have a clue. No. And they couldn't find out by reading the Herald. Well, I, I want to share with you just one set of numbers because I remember at the time that you were putting the reform through, mm-hmm. the argument that was put by you and me, because I used to give these speeches, is if we take seven and make them into one, we will get efficiency gains with regards to staffing. Mm-hmm. You will not need seven human resource departments. You'll That's only right. need one. You won't need seven accounting departments. You'll only, you won't need seven uh, um, IT systems. We can m- migrate everybody into a common platform and big savings with regards to maintenance and upgrades and so on. And it's, a, it's an absolute real-world story that happens in business when people – merge a whole lot of disparate operations and and refine them, they get enormous savings. They can reduce their total full-time equivalent staff. Well, I'll give you some numbers. At the time that the seven councils were made into one, the total full-time equivalent staff was just on 10,000. It's now 12,800. Unbelievable. So, So instead of getting a realistic reduction in the total staff because of the efficiency gains that should have been able to be gained by that new structure, we've actually had a dramatic increase in the total full-time equivalent staff. And I don't understand that. I just, that's the only reason I stood. I'm in my 70s and deciding, you know, retirement looked very good and happy to do other things and love going to the beach to Papua Nui and spending a time on the beach. And I thought, no, I'm not prepared to sit back and see what was a structure that should have been able to deliver fantastic outcomes, have delivered huge staff increases, huge cost explosions, huge levels of debt. And it its day of reckoning is, is well, it's here now. And mm. the other thing that I didn't mention. By the way, when we did the reform, yeah. of course, we, we sacked everyone and we rolled in the lower levels because we didn't have time. And we lost over two thousand for management, right? Right from this because you didn't need, as you say, right. uh, seven HR departments, and so two thousand just disappeared out the door. And the savings day one uh, were significant, but of course, politics being politics, and I'm not even sure if we voted centre right councillors in, but we voted in lefty mayors. And spending just goes up and up and up and up. And Len Brown and Phil Goff are never going to be the characters that will put a lid on it. And now we have Wayne Brown, who would put a lid on it, but he's hamstrung. Yeah, because the structures don't allow. He can't walk in there and say, I got elected on selling the airport shares, so tomorrow we're making an announcement we're selling them. He He's can't get the, the he can't get the chief executive in and say cut the budget by twenty percent. You choose. No, can't. And that's and that's what I've actually tried. Now, what we can do in the long term plan, because this is the next piece of the jigsaw that everyone really. I mean, I didn't even understand this quite well. 
you can't make changes to your annual budget no. if you didn't put them into your long-term plan no. because then people couldn't have expected this to come and so you've given them an unexpected change. Now, imagine if central government could not make changes unexpectedly by announcing GST one day, as Roger Douglas did. Yeah. No, sorry, Roger, that's not in our long-term plan. You can't bring a tax called GST in. The, the, the central government couldn't function like that. So at least after we've got this annual budget finished, which is next month has to be done, I've got a chance as the chairman of the expenditure control to get a complete review of that long-term plan and that spending. But again, it's no point me saying all of that if I get it 19 votes against and one in favour being myself. So you've got to get something that the, the majority of councillors can support. And it's really difficult because they go back to their own patch and there, there are people saying, oh, I don't want you to cut our early childhood cowrie kids thing. And I keep going back and saying, please tell me if you think local government should be about supporting early childhood education, because mm. that's not our role. And mm. we've got a healthy eatings program and a smoking cessation program with staff. And again, they're all very laudable aims in life. We should be trying to get people to stop smoking and we should get people trying to eat healthily, but it's not the role of a ratepayer-funded council. The other thing I noticed, Morris, is all your information funnels up to the chief executive and then to the council. Now, when you're in cabinet, you have multiple government departments. And if a minister or one particular government department is a bit off course, you actually get contestable advice. Yep. And ministers get told, oh, you know, that department that the Honourable Morris Williamson's in charge of have got a crazy idea here. You might want to ask some questions about it at Cabinet. Yes. Now that's actually happens, doesn't it? Oh, more than happens. It's quite the norm. And the other thing is quite the norm. I put up several things like I, I put up a roading proposal in the 90s called Better Transport, Better Roads. And it had the support of the Business Roundtable and the Chambers of Commerce and the, the Road and Trucking Association. And it was to try and turn the roads, which are run as almost a social welfare operation because there is local roads and there is uh, state highways run by the New Zealand Transport Agency and they don't even connect. And so I was trying to turn them into a commercial operation with a balance sheet and have to show return on investment and, and only invest in properties that, that had a proper return and so on. And I, I failed miserably because it just literally went wild with the contestable advice coming from other people. Oh, well, you know, that'll be too damaging to the local councils in our area and so on. And it, and it, and it failed. And Treasury pretty much put a kibosh on it and it died. We, the Better Transport, Better Roads is a lovely document that finally I couldn't get across the line. But Treasury were able to really put a blowtorch on anyone coming up with ideas mm. if they felt that it wasn't worth my... I, at that stage, I went and got a T-shirt printed I've still got it somewhere in my file. It's got cut out the middleman, vote treasury. <laughs> and um, But there's not that discipline within, within no. local government. We don't have and, a treasury department coming in and saying to 
you know, community services or whatever. You've had a dramatic blowout in your spending for the last four years. And this time your budget is going to stay at zero based budget, no increase at all, unless you can bring a particular application that's got some real merit. And can we can sit there and say, actually, that stacks up better than some spending elsewhere that we can now make a cut. <coughs> You're self-accepted and Wayne Brown accepted because um, I would describe you both as fiscal conservatives and business-oriented and realists. That's not the type of person that's attracted to stand for local government. No. And it's certainly not the type of person that's attracted to work in local government. Correct. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel good and bad about having won. I'm pleased that I got on the council, but what I now realise, I, I probably already knew it. In fact, I'm, I'm sure I knew it. What I didn't know is how bad it is in order to try to affect change. You have way more impact even just as an ordinary caucus member to taking a caucus paper to the caucus, getting it considered, getting it put up to the cabinet eventually, and finally getting it done. So I know a lot of people in Auckland who, when I've asked them, you know, would you be prepared to put your name forward and stand for the council? I, I just get the most guffawing laughter. Yes. You have got to be kidding. And I yes. said, no, no, people like you would make a really valuable contribution. You've got to be kidding. Word but of course... But of course, if you had eleven staunch and true, yeah, you'd change the world. You you would, but I don't know how you will ever get eleven staunch and true, uh, because everybody takes account of local concerns. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm in favour of this, but my local board needs that money to provide. You know, here in Howick, they run movies in the park nights where they hire huge TV screens and take over a park and put all these big speakers around and you can come to the park and watch a movie. And yet in my ward, I would say that the average house has got a 65-inch LED high-quality screen in most rooms, got a Netflix account, got a, a you know Hulu or whatever other accounts you can have and can see any movie whenever they want on any screen, and I don't know why ratepayers would fund such a thing. No. I am a great fan. You may not know of him, but uh, just let me make this little point of a, uh, a professor called Victor Davis Hanson, um, who now uh, is at the Hoover Institute, and he wrote a very interesting book that you may care to read called The Dying Citizen, and it's a shocking analysis that I – that actually took my head off. And the concept is over 30 or 40 years in America, and when I was reading this, I was thinking how horrific this is, and then you realise actually it's probably even worse here in New Zealand. The middle class have been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And by that, he means the ability to leave school, get a job, get married, get a house and have children and be mortgage-free, you know, in 25 years and live well. And so we now live in a situation in particularly Auckland, but elsewhere too, where having a job doesn't allow you to own a home. Correct. 
I've got three kids all in their 20s or one just turned 30 and none of them, they all live at home still and they all earn good money, but what they earn will be nowhere near enough to get on the property ladder. And I I think that we've let us, I I love that article I read yesterday by by Oliver Hart. Oh, yes. I know Damien Grant wrote an article and said, it's not that we've got a cost of living crisis, it's just that we're bloody poor. Yes, but that destruction of the ability of your children to own a home is a direct consequence of decisions made by Auckland Council and central uh, it's government. Bigger, it's bigger than that. It's a, a, a central government decisions as well that we yeah. keep printing money that we haven't got and funding things that we can't afford. Yeah. But, yeah, councils have contributed to it, definitely. Yeah, and, and here we are destroying the life chances of a generation and a generation to come, and we can't be bothered to get 11 people to put their hand up to fix it because you could, couldn't you? You could open up land. If you could find find 11 stunningly capable business people that really knew how to turn a business around – find where the fat is and rip it out, get a really high-performing outcomes and delivering of service and holding people to account. If you could find 11 of those that would stand, I would happily quit and let one of them take my seat right now. But the problem we've got is I've tried with so many people that I think have that that sort of qualification, and they look at you like you've got to be out of your cotton-picking mind. Why would I ever do such a thing? But surely there comes a point of public service and giving back? Well, hopefully. Um, look at my, I, again, go back to my pendulum argument at the beginning. I think the pendulum will swing back. Yes. But but again, if you look at the some of the people that were on the council back in the 50s and the 60s, many of them were senior business people. Many of them were senior people at running uh, companies and operations and really knew about budgets and 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 what a balance sheet looked like and so on. The the problem is that's but it's true of Parliament. I mean, right now the number of people that come to Parliament that their highest qualification is they were either, you know, a union official or had, had it's not got the appeal that or, public or service national party researcher. You know, to or whatever, to, to do it both or whatever. sides. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, people will say, "Oh, well, you're denigrating individuals who might be quite capable," and that's true. But what I am saying is, it used to attract. I've got a particular person I know well in Christchurch who is the most articulate speaker. He is hilariously funny. He is incredibly competent. He's running a very successful business. And I said to him, "Mate, if they could get you into the parliament, you would make." the world of difference. And he looked at me like I was mad. And he said, I, I pay more in tax than I'd ever earn as a member of parliament. Mm-hmm. And by the way, your private life will be pulled to pieces. Did you ever, you know, have sex with some girl at the university when you weren't married or something 50 years ago? And I'm not having that level, of, even though I don't think he's got anything bad in his closet because we've all got something. But he just says, why would you do it? And I would have wished that the world was the other way, that there would be a clamoring of really top-notch capable people have said, I've made a lot of money, I've been very successful, my kids have all got good marriages and jobs and so on. I'm going to devote some of my hours into trying to change this. Do you think 
a lot of the problem stems back to the legacy media and how they report politics and how they approach candidates, particularly candidates of a centre-right persuasion. Yes, I do. And I know, for example, the Herald have beaten to death one of the councillors here in Howick, the other councillor, Sharon Stewart, because she has voted against Phil Goff's budget and she voted year on year about it and said it was wrong and it was spending money we didn't have. And the 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 journalists on the Herald write dreadful stuff about Sharon Stewart, just really awful stuff. She's a lovely lady. But every time she stands, well, I don't actually mind whether she's lovely. I'd prefer someone that I didn't like as yeah. long as they were really good at what they did. But every time she stands, the voters of this ward give her top-notch billing. She beat me easily to get top-notch. And so you say, well, who knows best? Some journalist at the Herald who decides he'll sit and interview his typewriter or the vast bulk of the people that have, she's represented out here for year on year on year, and they vote her in again over the time. I'd take the voters' view of that any day over what a Herald journalist thinks. Well, and she's also putting herself out there for the vote. Correct. Correct, and has to, and that's a good thing. If people don't like you, that's why I like voting, because if people don't like you, they will sling you out. In 2002, when National fell right into the toilet and were literally gone, we got 20.9% of the party vote. Labor won the party vote in my electorate of Pakaranga so comfortably it's not funny, but I still got elected in the constituency vote. Yeah. And because they thought I was a good local MP but didn't like what my party stood for. Mm. And I think at the last election, you you know this, I'm sure, but at the last election, National didn't win one electorate party vote except for Epsom. Mm. They didn't win one electorate in the country party vote except for Epsom. Amazing. Tell me, um, the Herald are really doing a number on Wayne Brown, right? Yes, isn't that disgusting? It's, it is. But you know what? I, what I love about Wayne Brown, and there are many things I like about him, but one of the things is he doesn't care. You know, if you're a new I, – I can remember when I first got to Parliament in 87, if I got a nice story written about me and every now and then someone would write, oh, he's a you know real go-getter and he's really trying to – I think, oh, that's great. And if I got a bad story, I'd sit at home and mope and think, oh, I don't care anymore. You know, if the Herald want to write something ghastly about me, go to it. I don't care because I'm not there to get re-elected. I'm there to make a difference. And the same with Wayne Brown. He is there to make the change that is needed. And when he sees all these ghastly stories, his attitude is, you know, that's them. Who cares? Let's get on with what we're here for. But it's fascinating, isn't it? Because Wayne Brown stood up put out his, you know, billboard. And his flyers. And and his flyers. Gets elected. Everyone knows who he is. Everyone yep. knows what he said. Everyone knows who he stood for him. Yep. Meanwhile, you have Simon Wilson at the Herald. And who's that other character that's been there for a million years, writes about local government? Oh, Bernard Orsman. Bernard Orsman. These two guys are totally unelectable, right? You wouldn't put them in charge of a lemonade stand, right? And they are sitting there writing this commentary like they're philosopher kings who really should be running the council. Yeah, and I've always felt that if that's how you feel, if you believe that you know how this place should be run and it's not being done that way, 
a really simple solution. Stand. Mm. Put your name on a ballot paper and stand. Or if you're a journalist, write the stories. Not 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 engage in subterfuge and sabotage. And um, you know, these these there's these Wayne Brown, like I'm not Len Brown, Phil Goff, they were elected, but of course they go soft on the candidates whose policies they support. I mean, it's just literally this idea now, isn't it, that if you're a centre-right person, you are a bad person morally and you need to be exposed. And you can see Christopher Luxon trying to protect himself mm-hmm. by pretending he's a lefty. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um. Yes, but I'm not that sort of a person. I don't care. Yeah, and I, John I, Key was the same. Like you had to pretend that you'd be just like Jacinda or just like Helen Clark, but different. Yeah, and I guess that well, there is a bit of an element of why you do that, and I, I don't, I don't agree with this. But I tell you what, everything in the world, everything, because I did a maths and physics degree, everything in the world is governed by a bell curve, a normal distribution. Yes. And there is always, it doesn't matter whether it's the competency of the doctors in the health system or whatever, there are some at the top end that are spectacularly outstanding world-class. There are some at the bottom end that are just awful and shouldn't be practising, and the vast bulk are gathered around the centre. Okay? Now, there's problem with voters, it's like that. The vast bulk are gathered around that centre. And there are the people who vote for ACT at one extreme. There are the people that vote for the Greens at another extreme. But the vast bulk sit around that centre. And so if you want to be government, you've got to slide slightly into the other side's margin. Mm. Now, you don't have to. You can stand really strongly on some hardline stuff, which is where I would prefer. But as John Key will say, you'll have some of the best policies in the country and never get elected to implement them. But, of course, the difficulty is that centre has been shifted dramatically. Yes. It's and been moving to the left over the years. I mean, if you... Now, if you what could, is now centre used to be extreme left. Yeah. Norm Kirk, he would make Ruth Richardson look like a lefty. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And and that's, that's the creep. Um, if we look ahead... To your term, how long you've been in council now, Morris? Six months. So you've got two and a half years? Well, that's what's supposed to happen, I guess. <laughs> what do you hope to achieve in that two and a half years now? Well, first of all, we've got to try and get the, the, the annual budget for the mayor across the line and get that dealt to, and the law just dictates, because if we can't get an, uh, a balanced budget over, there is just the spectre of the government. We have to appoint commissioners to come in and take over the place. So I think we'll get there. I think nothing focuses the mind like the side of the guillotine, and a lot of councillors will say, well, we don't want to do this, but if we don't actually get an agreed budget together, we may not have jobs. If you think of the councillors putting the notice of motion in the Gore Council right now, they've got to think very carefully, do we want to cause this ruckus and suddenly not have jobs ourselves? because that's could be the option. What I really want to achieve is the big changes, the structural changes in the whole place. I mean, the, 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 the floor space that we have at the pricing per square metre is ridiculous compared to the buildings we still own and don't occupy. Vodafone guys said to me one day, 
they moved out of that magic building down at the Viaduct, beautiful big Vodafone. It was glass and mirrors and stunning. They moved out because they said they just couldn't afford the floor space rental. And it got occupied straight away by Auckland Transport, who took it over. <laughs> I bet the owner was rubbing their hands. And so your big focus is going to be on the long-term plan. Yeah. The structural changes where we've got to dramatically reduce spending across the board and get back to a realistic set of outcomes that are measurable, that can be held to account, that departmental managers have to deliver on. Uh, people should not keep their jobs forever and a day. I've been on the board of a company here called Holyoke Industries for 21 years, and we held managers to account for delivering output onto the loading dock at a price that was competitive and a product that was competitive and so on. And if they failed once, then it would be coming and talk about why it's gone wrong. If they failed twice, it would be, this is really serious and we can't keep funding this department. And if it was a third time, you're out, you're gone. Yeah. And and that's how it has to be in any organisation, be it a sporting team. You know, I'm sure that uh, Razor, when he's got his all-black team together next year and he's got them, he can't have a, a wing who keeps dropping the ball and failing to, to run when he's supposed to. And he can say, look, I can't keep you in here if you're not delivering what we've set you as your KPIs. So set a whole lot of very specific KPIs, set a whole lot of specific outcomes, rein in the spending monster and say, we've got to get ourselves back in real terms to what this council was spending when it was first formed 12 years ago. Mm. Absolutely. And then Harvard. Oh, well, um, I'd like to go further after that, but, <laughs> but you know, when, when you're trying no, to... When you're trying that, to climb Mount Everest, getting to the base camp is the first point along the way. First step one, step on the way. And and so, Morris, thank you for coming on Reality Check Radio. I'm talking to Morris Williamson, a 30-year veteran of Parliament and now a newbie on the Auckland Council, discovering how hard it is with the legislation in place, the councillors who are cats, trying to herd them, and uh, a person who no matter what the subject, uh, tells you how he sees it and not too worried about the political consequences, which is why we enjoy having him on, because he might get into trouble. <laughs> it's always it's always one of those. I can imagine, Morris, Jim Bolger having conniptions if you were ever going to go on the home show or give an interview because um, you are a politician despite your long service, who always says exactly what you think. But I I think the public want you to do that. And, yeah. and I like the idea that if they don't like me, they'll throw me out. Yeah, well, good on you. And Pakaranga was an electorate that National didn't even hold when I first stood here. So this mm. idea it was a blue ribbon seat that we have for life. I turned it in by the second uh, term. I turned it into the biggest majority in New Zealand's history. One mm. is really proud of this. The biggest majority in the old first-past-the-post had been Michael Joseph Savage with 8,700. I won the Pakaranga seat a second time in 1990 with a 9,300 majority. And that was, in some cases, having upset people and said some pretty rough stuff about what I thought needed to happen or what I liked and didn't like. And I still remember an old lady at one of the shopping centres saying to me one day, I don't like you, but I will vote for you because I think you'll get some things done. Isn't that great? Well, I've always thought Michael Joseph Savage, Morris Williamson, and, 
you know, I should not have compared my. That no, was a and and I've got no, a picture. Was... I've got a picture of both of you in my living room. That above was a the thing to compare myself to him. <laughs> Morris, always a pleasure. I've been speaking to Morris Williamson uh, on the council, Auckland Council, long time national MP, MP for Pakaranga, all round good guy, and uh, fantastic the interview because um, unlike our prime minister, Morris Williamson doesn't actually have to pre-formulate his answers. Uh, he actually is thinking about what he's doing each day. And so when you ask him about what he's doing each day, he can actually answer it. Uh, you're on Reality Check Radio, Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Real Talk on RCR, Reality Check Radio.